everyone, and welcome to Death by Adaptation, Clapper's monthly book club where we choose two books and compare them against their cinematic adaptations. And today we have a very special, special episode because we're doing only one book. We're talking about The Rum Diary by Hunter S. Thompson and comparing it to its 2011 cinematic adaptation. And as always, I am your host, Nicola Grasso, joined by the lovely Yuan Gledo. And we have a very, very special guest with us. We have Troy Little, an acclaimed, they even say, writer of a comic book writer, graphic novel creator, who has a strong passion for Antares Thompson. He's created a lovely, lovely adaptation of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And thank you very much for joining us, Troy. How are you doing? Doing well and super happy to be here. Uh, way back when I was listening to you guys talk about the uh, the Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas uh, book to movie, I was I was like talking to the screen the whole time, going like, "I want to be in on this conversation so bad right now." You guys, you guys get it, and you guys had the understanding of Hunter Thompson, his kind of background, and, and it was just interesting. Like I, I so bad wanted to be in that conversation with you guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy to have you here, and it's. It's one of those, it's going to be one of many interesting, special, weird episodes we're going to be doing this year. We have we have some plans in the work, Ewan and I. But by the way, Ewan, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> sorry. I'm trying your glasses on. <laughs> I, I just, I got new glasses and I still can't see anything, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm all over the place as usual. Yeah, good. I'm not... I've not fumbled anything this year, so I mean, we're six days into the year. There's still time, but so far, so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's never too late for things to get worse, honestly. But I think like that state of mind is the best state of mind to approach an Andres Thompson story. But before we dive into the book, the Rum Diary, I'm just curious, Troy, since we've we already talked about Andres Thompson, me and you, and I know you and is a longer history with him than I do, uh, but. Where did you discover his love? Where did all of that start? I'm curious to know a bit more. What led you to make Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas as a graphic novel? I think probably before I knew who Hunter S. Thompson was, I was a fan of Ralph Steadman. And I think he kind of led me in into around a lot of things. Like, um, I would just recognize his artwork. So like, oh, what's this with Nail and I movie? You know, it has, Hunter, <sighs> it has Ralph Steadman artwork on it. And, and all these other books that had his artwork on it. And I keep seeing this this odd character with a cigarette on a stick, weird aviation glasses and a bucket hat. Somewhere uh, along the line, I put two and two together, uh, found out who Hunter S. Thompson was. And uh, I think I probably, I was reading the book, maybe seeing the movie probably around a similar time. Um, mm. And I was hooked, like right away, uh, just really enjoyed kind of the ride that Terry Gilliam took me on with that. And I got right into like listening to the audiobook versions of it, the audio plays, reading the book, um, and kind of just devouring a lot of Hunter S. Thompson stuff from there. Um, really enjoyed uh, The Curse of Lono and some other books like that, and, and started delving back into Hell's Angels and some of his earlier things. So um, I don't know where it came out of like the blue one day. I was working as a writer and artist on the Powerpuff Girls comic for IDW Publishing and uh, submitting pages and just getting an email back saying, you know, stuff's looking great, uh, all good. By the way, would you be interested in doing a pitch for Fear and Loving Las Vegas adaptation? Which seems like the most abstract and, and left field thing for someone <laughs> working on the Powerpuff Girls to be offered. 
Yeah. Uh, but of course, it could just be one of my favorite books of all time at that point. So uh, I wanted to say yes immediately and then had nothing but self-doubt and crippling anxiety about the whole project, thinking there's no way I can do justice to this book. Um, the one thing that kind of kept me on on task with the project was that if I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it who isn't going to love it as much as me. And so mm -hmm. even my worst shot at it will at least have a heart, I hope. <laughs> so I put in a pitch, um, and two days later they said, you're off Powerpuff Girls, you're doing Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas adaptation for the next year and a half. Wow. And I, being kind of like an indie background for comics, it was just a hog for, I want to... I want to adapt it myself. I want to draw it. I want to color it. I want to hand letter it. I want to do everything. And they basically trusted me to not screw it up, which was basically my goal from, from the get go with this project is don't screw it up. Um, so I, I started working on it for a while. They, uh, they eventually announced it and it was the first time I'd ever seen hate mail and, and vitriol for me online of, you know, the online community of Hunter Thompson can be very, fairly rabid. Uh, so it was break his hands and who is this guy? He's not Ralph Steadman, all that sort of thing. But uh, the like one no pressure thing, that way. Yeah, no, no pressure at all. <laughs> so I did my best. I put out uh, what I what I thought was hopefully a companion piece somewhere that met between what the book offered and what the film gave you. As, as, as some, a third version of it that didn't really just copy the film, but also could give it an introduction more akin to the novel, I guess, than the film did. And which was one of the great compliments I got from it was people said they'd read the graphic novel and felt that was way more how I imagined the book in my head than watching the Gilliam film. So that was a good compliment for me to kind of find that. I went over a few journalists who, who hated uh, you know, anybody, the idea of anybody adapting Hunter Thompson, uh, they give a big caveat review of, of the book saying, I'm a journalist because, you know, Hunter Thompson got me into it. And who is this guy? But it's actually pretty good. So if I went over the journalist, I figure I did all right, you know, as yeah. best as anyone could possibly do it. I, I have to agree with them. It's, it's a joy to read, especially reading it right after reading the novel for the first time, it's it's such a breezy, breezy read. It feels like reading the novel all over again, but in the best way possible, um, especially after watching the movie, which we talked about. We were we, mm. we enjoyed, but we're not the biggest fans of. And it's, it's honestly, to anyone listening, I highly recommend it. We're going to be putting links in the descriptions if you're on Spotify, iTunes, like links to where, you, where to find all of Troy's stuff and links to the, to the graphic novel, because honestly, it's worth it. It's really, really worth it. Um, but yeah, since we're, we're talking about Andres Thompson and we're talking about the rum diary. But you said he never came here. He's got filters. What filters? He goes over the wall at the Bacardi exam. These filters are the last in line in the distillation process. They contain more ethanol than rocket fuel. What's it like? It's a hand on the brain, off the scale. 470 proof. No such thing as 470 proof alcohol. Certainty you might be required to moderate. Uh, no smoking in the extraction area, have you, please? Don't be ridiculous. 
the book Ram Diary has an interesting origin because it's it's connected to the movie because our good friend Johnny Depp was working with Andres Thompson in the late 90s, preparing his character and everything for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And inside his house, he found like old manuscripts of his work. And among those, he found Andres Thompson's first novel, Drum Diary, which he wrote in 1961. And, you know, it... Andres Thompson wasn't a big fan of the novel, apparently. <laughs> he just put it in the show for a good reason. But then he said, you know what, like, for money, I'll, I'll publish it. Why not? Everyone's interested in my work again. I just publish it. And it came out, I think, the same year as the film in 1998. And uh, The Rum Diary is, is a fascinating read, to say the least. And the most interesting thing about it is that it is Andres Thompson's first novel. Like, you're seeing him like you see fragments of what's going to fully develop into his style of gonzo journalism and all that but this is a proper fiction story set inside in set in puerto rico where Andres thompson actually did work in 1960 when he was only like 21 and it's semi-autobiographical but it's way more fictional than something like hell's angels or fear and loathing which are borderline autobiographical so I'm just curious, how do you two feel about the novel of The Rum Diary? Why don't we start with you, Troy? I remember buying Rum Diary when it first came out. Um, I was kind of excited to like, oh, wow, early work of Hunter Thompson, new book. This is this is great. It was just at the time I was kind of really at my, my apex of being, you know, just devouring a lot of his books. And my first impression when I was reading it was, this isn't very good. <laughs> I was a little disappointed, I think, maybe with the, uh, you know, I came at it from from the Fear and Loathing, the Hells Angels kind of thing like that. And so I'm going back and um, not finding a, kind of the stuff that I wanted to find in it at the time. So for me, uh, having the opportunity to go back and reread it now with maybe a little bit more time with Hunter Thompson, time with the book, mm. time with the story was actually really good. I enjoyed it much more uh, the second time around. I think uh, knowing a lot more about Hunter himself, his life um, helped kind of put more of a context into the period and the story itself for me. Yeah. How do you feel, Ewan, about this novel? It's, yeah, it's like what Troy said. It was, you know, I, I went into it thinking it's going to be pure gonzo. It's going to be madness again. It's its own madness and it's its own special little way. Um, it's a lot more reined in than I was mm. thinking it would be, um, which isn't a bad thing. Uh, I think in the grand scheme of things, sort of in the longevity of what Rum Diary is sort of meant to propose, it's, it's not a bad thing that it's not crazy and demented. Um, but I, I feel like it's more grounded because it's more grounded. It gets a, a nice perception of what journalism was at the time and sort of how it's evolved from there. Mm. I mean, I, I've now started working in journalism and it's nothing like that, unfortunately. <laughs> but... I wish it was. I wish it was just drinking rum and writing about bowling alleys because that does sound quite nice. But um, <laughs> it, it's a very good novel, considering that's like an early work that he was embarrassed about, which mm. is mad in, in hindsight. It's, it's such a good book. Um, it's definitely not sort of, you know, it's 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 not Fear and Law than in Las Vegas. It's not even Fear and Law than in the campaign trail, but it is very good. And I think it's at a point where we're always sort of hanging around waiting for more Hunter Thompson went to re like release or leak 
like you know, I, I don't know when Prince Jellyfish is coming out, but it might. Hmm. You know, someday, someday. <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah, but until then, we've kind of got to just scrabble over the scraps that are left over. Stuff like the Rum Diaries, kind of uh, two hundred and fifteen pages of just absolute gold to to big fans of Hunter Thompson, and it, and it is really good. It, it's very enjoyable. I think yeah. that's where my second read through uh, definitely helped, kind of like know my expectations because um, my expectations were you know the high watermarks of some of his books and stuff to go back to something you wrote when he's 21 as a struggling fiction author um he couldn't get it published at the time i think he had like at least seven rejections and stuff before he had to go and steal the manuscript back um so yeah it definitely reads as like an early novel but you can see so many little gems and nuggets of what's to come with it mm. uh i also wonder too uh, I watched a little 30 minute documentary on the rum diary, uh, when they're trying to publish it with Simon Schuster, how much editing after the fact went into it, because I could see him speaking with the editors, trying not to get too much of the, the later Hunter Thompson's voice into the earlier work, but there was an editorial pass put on it. It wasn't just published straight, uh, from the original manuscript too. Mm. Yeah. That's understandable. Mm. And I have to agree. It's. Again, he has a very interesting style of writing, and it's, it is in its infancy in this novel, but I would say, if not necessarily a problem, but it's very, it has a lot of tonal shifts that can, took me off guard multiple times. And I think the first one was in the opening, when he's on the plane, he's like boarding the plane to go to Puerto Rico, and he's sitting down in his, in his aisle, and there's the, the man behind him, he's just choking, and the old man is just hitting him and stuff. I was like, this is straight out of <laughs> Fear and Loathing. Like it felt, it felt like I was going to be reading something like that, but then it does change. Um, it's a very, it's a very relaxed novel. Like there's not much going on by design on purpose of just this man, this journalist. He starts writing in this very <laughs> down on its luck newspaper, and and it's it was yeah oddly comforting because it's primarily about him interacting with the people of Puerto Rico interacting with his fellow journalists who are a whole bunch of different characters. <laughs> like so many of them are memorable for their own different quirks and reasons. And Andrew Dice Thompson just brings them to life in such a vivid way. I wouldn't be shocked if he actually did straight up like take occasions, like events that actually happened to him during the 1960 time in Puerto Rico. It's, it's incredible. Um, and I think if I have a big, big problem with the story, which kept me from fully getting invested in it, I think it's the entire relationship with Paul Camp, the protagonist, and Chenault, the, the lady that he sees on the plane, and then she's actually the girlfriend of another journalist that he's working with. That whole story, which we're going to be talking a bit more about when we go into the film, that whole narrative was just weird, fascinating even, it, very erotic, very sensual, but also doesn't have that much to do with the whole journalist angle. I found those moments where we're inside the newspaper and we're following the people around as they're trying to write the articles and they spend time at Al's drinking rum and eating like four hamburgers, two hamburgers and it's <laughs> just so much hamburgers. <laughs> but it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on. At the same time, there's not a lot. It's a very uneven novel, but but like you guys said, it's very enjoyable. 
like I read it in less than a week, which is always a good a good thing for my standards. And I need to read more Hunter S. Thompson now. I really yeah, do. It, it's very light on plot. <laughs> it's it's mm. more you're on the journey again with him. Uh, and this is what happened as opposed to actually having a real definitive uh, narrative string that you're following. Yeah. And even the themes that he tackles, um, it's that's what blows me away is just thinking he was 21 when he wrote this. And he's already thinking about like not being enough in life. I'm going to grow old without having actually accomplished anything. <laughs> just all the fear of growing old and going over the hill, quote unquote. Um he was very mature for his age. And I think everything that he lived through must have changed him so much. <laughs> like so, so much. To actually end up writing something like this. Um, and that's what carries the entire story as well. It's this, this need to just prove himself as, as a journalist, as a writer. You can feel it in the words as well. Um, which again, edited or not edited, it'd be interesting to read the actual manuscript how much was changed in terms mm-hmm. of words, in terms of structure. Um, maybe they cut some things off. I can see this being like very bloated and meandering even more than it already is. Um, but yeah, bless him. Bless him. Um, I thought it was interesting when I was reading it and uh, Paul Kemp's character was speaking about his age. He's at the bar drinking rum as, as he's mm. wont to do through the book. And, and thinking about his age and how over the hill he is and tired and achy he is at 31. And I was thinking, wait, how old was he when he wrote this book? So I looked it up and he was about 21, 22 when he wrote the book. Mm. Wow, he's really projecting 31 as being this ancient over the hill thing. And and me being on the cusp of 50-ish now here, I'm thinking, 31? Oh my God. It's no idea. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a third of your life at that point. So it's it's a lot, you know. I I, I read it on my birthday and I I just turned 22. (laughs) And I felt kind of old. And I was like, oh no, what have I done? (laughs) Oh, it's terrible. And it it is amazing that he sort of matured at that level of of that age. And it was so quick in the, my God, he, he writes like someone with so much experience. And that probably has the benefit of the hindsight of he's gone back to edit it. But mm-hmm. at the very fundamental core, there is a, a genuine knowledge of journalism at such a young age from Thompson. If if he was writing for the San Juan Star that early on, and he's getting to know all these characters and he's embedding them in this book, it's just, he must have been adapting to it so quickly. And that kind of shines through with the Room Diary. And I think that's why you've got a really nice foundation of this is what journalism is in the 1960s on an island far away from his hometown. And then around that, you've got all these wacky characters essentially that he's probably embellished and blown out of proportion to what they really were but it's scary to think that they they were actual characters anyways because even even from a reserve standpoint they're they're insane yes yes yeah and i found it interesting with like because he he has that kind of ugly american kind of injecting himself where he's projecting everyone else is being worse than they're actually behaving you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's such a funny contrast, and they're just being complete degenerates and awful to everyone, and then accusing everyone of being worse than they are. Yeah, there's there's definitely a way to read the portrayal of Puerto Rico's negative. One could easily say that, like, oh, it's it's not the most endearing portrait of Puerto Ricans um, in one way, but then, like you just mentioned, you have to remember, like these Americans are treating everyone like absolute shit. 
like they're acting they're acting like they they're owning everything um you have not only the journalists just invading people's lives and constantly demanding an endless amount of rum and burgers for possibly no money at all uh, but you also have a whole subplot about a politician who's trying to build more hotels and casinos on the island there's like you you are you do feel that claustrophobia that the people of San Juan were feeling, or at least the fictional people of San Juan, of just this lovely, beautiful, gray, green island where they're just living their life and they get invaded by these tourists and by these journalists, by these rich men who are slowly starting to tear everything down. And so there's a lot of, a lot of conflict between the people of the city and the whole island with the Americans. But since you're seeing it from an American's point of view, like they, it feels a bit negative. <laughs> and in the first half of the novel, it's you know, like you still feel the contrast between them acting like dicks and <laughs> people just trying to defend themselves. But it does go in a bit of an unfortunately uncomfortable direction towards the end, which is a part of the novel that took me out of it, um, which again has to do with Chanel. When they're going to the big carnival feast and they go to a party, a private party, they just end up in those parties. It's, it's very interesting how, he, how everything is very organic, very natural, just finding the flow of the party. And they end up in this mansion and she starts dancing and she, everyone's very drunk and she sort of strips down and they just throw out Paul Kemp and the other guy. And bad things happen to her. And that was just weird direction that it took um very dark it reminded me of fear and loathing in las vegas at the end where there's a confrontation inside the diner uh, only that in that novel it felt a bit more i don't know like the tonal balance was better than in this because it feels almost like a light switch because instantly it's kind of like oh there's there's abuse and it 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 is very icky because it's thinking like oh be afraid of the Puerto Ricans, like don't leave girls alone because they're going to do bad things to them. I don't know how you two feel about that sequence <laughs> of the book. Um, she was, she was, uh, she wasn't treated well by the Americans either. No. Uh, Joseph <laughs> no. would be smacking her around a bunch. And, uh, yeah, she, yeah. she was an enigmatic character to kind of show up and having her own story go on, but very much mm. like Paul Kemp is kind of just leeching off the backs of other people in some ways um, for whatever she's trying to get out of the story. It was very unclear, I guess. Yeah. I like the, um, there's a really telling sequence I felt early on where um, he was reviewing, I guess, uh, some one of the other journalists story on, he was trying to do an expose on why Puerto Ricans would be leaving on mass. Mm. And, they didn't have really big complicated reasons, you know, and there's, there's really something interesting to that. Uh, why am I here? Paul Kemp's it's not very complicated reasons either. Everybody's trying to go somewhere and, uh, it isn't a clear cut thing, but I felt there was a very telling moment in that sequence. I can't quite put my finger on it yet. Like what exactly it was trying to say, but I remember it standing out to me. Um, yeah, Wait. I wish I had more to say on that. Yeah, it's. I, I think that's probably my highlight of the whole novel. Um, not only that, just the fact that the editor of the of the, of the newspaper is trying to cut the article down. Just, oh, it's too long. We cannot yeah. run serials. It's not going to be super long. So just cut it down, cut it down. 
and Paul Kemp in the end decides to just leave it as it is. I think that's like, it. It's the very truth. Very banal, but it's, yes. Yeah. It's yes. the truth of what's happening, and it's not exciting. It isn't pretty. It isn't going to bring tourists down here. It isn't really going to explain anything. But it is what it is, and it's the truth. And the fact that the guy wouldn't run that as it was <laughs> um, was a very People don't want to read it. <laughs> People don't want to read it. Um, it does feel like a precursor to what he's going to be writing about when he goes back to America, when he becomes a journalist, just trying to find the American dream and why people do what they do. And it's it's so good. It's so, so good. And yeah, Chenoy is... She's a... Ah, I, I wish there was more to her because, like you said, just she as a dark past. She just decided to move to Puerto Rico as well to just find some meaning in life just to find something a better future and yeah it's it's a character that could have been way more developed because she does get a lot of abuse just so um treated almost like, yeah, like a sex object throughout um punched constantly by her fiance by her boyfriend um that has yeah i don't know I don't know, just that character. Come on, I was so completely good with it. Um, and pretty much the only female in the whole book, too, surrounded by all these basically savage men, true. you know? Um, so she she was definitely the focal point of everyone's either attention or affection or lust and yes. uh, was passed around as such. It, it does a lot to highlight the sort of the, the Western caricature as Thompson's trying to present in the press, but there's surely a better way to do it than than what he does. I mean, it, it works to to an extent where you've got all these press uh, journalists running around, they're all horrible people, and and you kind of get a, a feeling for it, and you, you you see why. It's just that the the best moments come from you know when when the three of them are thrown into prison, they're on bail. It's like the the, the tension of that segment and what happens afterwards is more of an impact than anything that happens with her and the one talking female character of the book who is essentially just hounded out by a bunch of journalists and Puerto Ricans and not really doing anything else. She's, she's sort of just there, which is a shame because I think the, the actual caricature is of the, the press stuff. I was, I was talking to a lecturer I work with and he said, Oh yeah, there was someone like that one we used to work in whatever place. And it's like, yeah, that's pretty common by the sounds of it. Just <laughs> excelled here to just, mystifying proportions just so to take it to the next level is to sort of say oh the people that work in the industry they can point at one of those characters and go we used to have a guy or a gal like that but to the point where it's at least distant because nobody in their right mind would ever act like anybody in this book Mm -hmm. nobody would ever go beyond the pale of that or at least you'd hope so hopefully yeah Um, there's there's a lot of drinking. There's just a lot, a lot of drinking in this novel. Um, and even then, it's... I don't know if he was already heavy into drinking at this point when he wrote it. I, I'm thinking so, right? Like 1961 I would think so. I can't remember who wrote it, but there was a biography on his work, and I'm pretty sure he started in like the late 50s. Something around then. Yeah, because the, the portrayal of alcoholism is very, very natural, very believable. It's never cartoonish, and he doesn't go into, like, farce like he does with some of his later work. It's very, like you mentioned earlier, very grounded, very restrained. It's just the fact that 
like on almost every scene, whenever they get a chance, <laughs> just pop up with a bottle of rum. It's like, oh, you have to go to that place where they sell you a whole bottle for like $2. And if you go here, it's like three glasses for one. It's just this constant drinking, just binge drinking for almost no reason at all, because there's not much else to do on this island. They're always struggling to do anything. They, they're they barely working because all of the stories are just puff pieces. Mm-hmm. The journal is struggling to actually survive, to make ends meet. You have this horrible editor who's just doing everything he can to not pay his workers. <laughs> It's kind of like England, really. Just <laughs> all of it. You're living it right now. The, the <laughs> modern the version. Dream. I live the dream. I, I get up, I have a nice big swig of vodka, I sit down at my desk, and then I write for 8 to 17 hours. Jeez. Like the Orange Pico Diaries, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, I think, to, to be fair, it's like from, from the people I've worked with, that sort of drinking culture in journalism is kind of accurate, where it's... I, I remember in my first year of university, our law lecturer said to us, journalists don't mind where they work as long as they're paid enough for a pint. And that's about right for journalism. And I think it's... As, as long as you have enough to live in a house and have enough to go to the pub, that's all right. And it's... It's it's shocking how many people sort of not agree with it, but kind of fall into that culture because that's where the stories are. So I, I know it's absent in this book, but there is a sense of well, all the journalists that are on the staff now are drinking and socialising and smoking. We've got to do the same to get ourselves in. We've got to make friends. We've got to get the scoop essentially. And it's it's always why when you sort of see journalism adapted into film or into books, it's they're always heavy drinkers. There's not one other than the French Dispatch. But even then, that sort of shares a resemblance with the room diary to an extent where you've got those characters in the newsroom. You've got the guy that can write three stories in an hour. You've got the guy that doesn't write a thing. They're all just unique little characters, but at some point they have all been seen at a bar or at a a newsroom somewhere in the world. Yeah. The world of journalism is magical and mystical. Oh, it's... (laughs) I mean, I wrote a story on a woman who'd ordered a bacon sandwich that didn't have enough bacon in it, and that was front-page news by the sounds of it. It was a slow news day, but... That's a very slow news day. Oh, honestly, it was... It's like the only thing that actually happened in the day outside of waking up. It was the same shift I wrote a story on a bacon sandwich not having enough bacon in it. I wrote a front-page story about coronavirus, and that's just sort of the sway of news. (laughs) It's one minute you're with the shit munchers, the next minute you're you're the star. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, man. Anyway, it's... Like the Rum Diary, as we as we mentioned earlier, was released in 1998. The novel did all right because of Hunter S. Thompson's rise to fame after the release of the film *Fear and Loathing*, and instantly studios wanted to cash in on the success of the film and the novel. They bought the rights and they tried to make it work, and it didn't come to life for almost well for well over a decade actually. Um, they pitched it in the early 2000s, didn't work out. They pitched it right before Andres Thompson died, didn't work out. A few years later, same thing. And then finally, in 2010, they greenlit it, they got the cast, Johnny Depp came back, he helped bring the book to life, and so he was more than happy to actually bring the, no- to bring the film as well to life, the adaptation. Um, and what we got is this 2011 film directed by Bruce Robinson, which is a nice 
like going back to Whitney and I, which you mentioned earlier, Troy mm-hmm. is it's this director of Whitney and I, mm-hmm. um, a filmmaker that I completely forgot didn't make a film for almost 20 years because he started off with Whitney and I in 87. He made How to Get Ahead in Advertising in 89. What a film! What a film that is! It's so good. I've not met anyone that's seen it, and everyone I've shown it to at my friend group has been horrified. I'd never heard of it. It's, it's Richard E. Grant, and he grows a big boil on his neck, and it starts speaking to him. And eventually it grows bigger and bigger, so he's got two heads. And he's like an advert executive, so he's trying to think up skincare regimens. And he's like, well, I can't do this. I've got a boil on my neck yelling at me. It's fantastic. <laughs> Honestly, it's so good. It's something to check out. Um... He did make Jennifer 8 in 1992, another movie that I've never heard of, unfortunately. Um, and then that's it. This For like almost 20 years, that's it for him. And he came back for The Rum Diary, um, which is an interesting choice. And honestly, with someone who made With Me and I, and like you mentioned, even that advertising film, he had style. He, he lived through some of those things. Like he, he acknowledged that he suffered from alcoholism very heavily when he was younger. Um, he was sober prior to making this film, and when they tasked him to actually write the screenplay, he had to start drinking again because he couldn't write anything. He was suffering from writer's block, which is, I mean, poor guy. Um, and he wrote it. He ended up directing it, and you have a big, big cast. You have Johnny Depp as the lead, Amber Heard as as Chanel. Um, Aaron Eckhart plays Sanderson, but that's not the same guy that is supposed to be playing from the novel because they changed some things up, some names here and there. But he's playing the, the boyfriend of Chanel. Um, we have Richard Jenkins, Michael Rispoli, Giovanni Ribisi. It's a, it's a name cast. And the film came out and it bombed. <laughs> like Very few people watched it. Critics didn't like it. Audiences didn't care about it. I honestly remember even watching the trailer for it back in the day. I don't know in front of which film. I think maybe Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. Something that I was like, I don't I don't know what this is. I don't think I'll watch it. Um, and so this is the first time for me actually watching it. And I am not a fan of it, unfortunately. Because both in, from people in front and behind the camera, it could have been really good. And I think the director had the track record to bring to life uh, a good Hunter S. Thompson adaptation. But unfortunately, this ain't it. Um, I'm curious to know how you two feel about The Rum Diary from 2011. Uh, Why don't you go first, Troy? Uh, I'd seen the movie again a while back uh, and and revisited it until until just recently. Uh, So... What's interesting for me is when I got, just to take it to fear and loathing for a second, having to ad- adapt Hunter Thompson myself, mm. um, when we were talking with the editors and the estate and things like that about how to do this properly, we realized like, you can't mess with Hunter's words. That's, that's like, basically it was our golden rule that any word that shows up in the graphic novel is going to be from him. And for me, I like that because almost everything that I've enjoyed that's been adapted to film has been adapted in a way where it loses some aspect of the original source material and becomes this other thing. Mm. And uh, so for me, having been like lukewarm on the Rum Diary novel uh, and rewatching the movie 
following that up, I actually thought it elevated it. I thought it was better in some ways than the book. Um, what Bruce kind of brought to it had, I think, the knowledge of like Hunter Thompson's life to kind of pepper in there. I'd seen an interview with him talking about how he'd read the book two or three times. He was unaware of it until Johnny Depp kind of forced him to read it. <laughs> and he says, I kept two lines from the novel and then I went off to adapt my own version of the story, kind of knowing this is my basis, this is my ground zero, mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to incorporate myself, my own ideas, a plot. <laughs> he actually inserted a plot into the story. Um, smashed a few characters together, like the Sanderson, Yosef character, just to mm. kind of streamline things a little bit. Um, but I felt in a lot of ways, like it, it actually benefited from having a more mature kind of pass over it, uh, mm. as far as like becoming a narrative story and, and telling the story of this character's kind of like arc through his time in, uh, in journalism down there. So. I enjoyed it quite a bit the second time. Again, the first time I think both the movie and the book fell a little flat on me. So revisiting both actually improved both for me. And I find the movie a different adaptation than it is. And it isn't just recreating the novel, but it's telling a version of it sort of thing. So like, like a, a B version of it or something. <laughs> How about you, Ewan? I know you as well have watched it a couple of times now. Uh, yeah, I am... Um... I think I, I bought it like in 2019 and then as you can probably see behind me did not get to it because I've got a couple other things to watch um but I, did, I got round to it because uh, we got put in a lockdown way back in 2020 um and there was nothing else to do and I thought right well I'll give it a go why not and I hated it I couldn't stand it I thought it was dreadful I I didn't like the, the perspective of the characters. I didn't like the dialogue. I didn't like the direction. I thought it was grim, boring, never thought anything of it. And I went back to it a couple of days ago. It was all right. It, it, was, it was a marginal improvement. And I think a lot of it comes from not just having read the source material now, but kind of knowing more about the perspective of Thompson, what he was trying to comment on with the Rum Diary and sort of what he would then go on to do. And it's, it's the little things that annoyed me. It's like, oh, Johnny Depp's not the only person who can play Hunter S. Thompson. Turns out, yeah, he kind of is. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen Fear and Loathing in Aspen, but it's it, what Johnny Depp can provide is a performance rather than an impression. Mm. And it's it's hard not to impersonate Thompson with the whole, you know, the, the slurred speech and the, the rum in one hand and the cigarette in the other. Just sort of that mentality with the floral shirts and the you know, the, the, the poker visor and all the, the shorts and stuff like that. It's it's really difficult to pull it away from that image. And I think Johnny Depp does that really well in The Room Diary. And I, and I do sort of appreciate the fact that he, he is dead set on just adapting Hunter S. Thompson's works to the big screen. He, he will not rest until they're all done, <laughs> um, which is both a blessing and a curse for audiences because you get stuff like Fear and Loathing, fantastic. And then you get stuff like Room Diary where it's, right down the middle it's it's all right i'm glad i rewatched it because i realized i was being a bit of a fool when i said it was <laughs> shit it, it, although it's still not fantastic there are some rather glaring issues which i'm sure we'll, we'll talk about mm -hmm. but for the bulk of it, it it was all right i enjoyed it it was um it was good i i mean to put it in perspective i don't think it's the worst adaptation of hunter s thompson's work from the past 70 years so that's good. 
<laughs> so that should be on the poster for the movie. Yeah, it should be. it's not the worst adaptation that they've made. <laughs> Better than Where the Buffalo Roam. Two and a half out of five. <laughs> Badge of honor. Um, it was nice to see he didn't actually just do the... He, he played the character of Paul Kemp and not the character yeah, of Hunter yeah. Thompson. Yes, yes. He said in an interview something like... Um, he wanted to show the sort of Raoul Duke before he went off the rails. Mm-hmm. And I think he balances that with actually adapting Paul Kemp really well. Um, there's, there's, there's never, you know, you can never escape the sort of the fact that he did play Hunter S. Thompson at his prime in Fear and Loathing. That was always going to stick to his persona and what he was going to perform with. But I think he does really well to dial it back, especially in the scenes that need it most, you know, the introduction when he goes in to see Richard Jenkins, his character, um, that has remnants of what Raoul Duke would be for Fear and Loathing, but it never overwhelms what Paul Kemp represents because they're two very different characters and what they represent is quite different as well. And I think that's that's the best aspect of The Room Diary is that it, it gets it right. It knows that this is a Hunter Thompson project, but at the same time knows that it isn't actually about him per se. Mm-hmm. It's not about Raoul Duke. It's not about all those characters in Fear and Loathing. It's as well to step back from that because the, the temptation is there. It's it's very difficult not to say, oh, look, Fear and Loathing again, look, but we're in a different country. It's it's good of them to step back from that, but obviously the impact is Bruce Robinson going quite mad. Yeah, there's there's only a couple sequences where they actually go in a Fear and Loathing direction. There's like a drug trip that they take later on in the film where it has like, oh, the long tongue and everything slowed down. And it's that feels like straight out of the movie. That's almost like Terry Gilliam style. But for the yeah. most part, it is refreshing that it's not trying to be the other film. It's trying to be its own thing. Um, and in some ways, it is. it does benefit from it. I, like you said, Troy, the fact it actually has a drive, a driving force throughout the... It's actually very welcome compared to the novel. Um, it's a good adaptation in that sense from, from Bruce Robinson. But uh, I don't know. I think what, what was lacking for me is that it felt a bit sanitized throughout. Because reading the novel, it's it's dirty, it's grimy, there's a lot of there's a lot of edge to the characters, to what happens. And in the film, it's it is following many of the same scenes, many of the same story bits as well in certain parts, but it feels like it's holding itself back a little too much, even at times. Um, it never gets too ugly. Which, I mean, fair enough. It is, after all, a, a more mainstream adaptation. It's trying to cater to a wider audience. But I think that's what was missing, ultimately, to actually make it to actually make it very, very good, in my opinion. Um, I don't know, maybe a second watch will make it better. Just They're much kinder, much kinder to Amber Heard than they were to Chanel in the novel. <laughs> yes, yes. I don't think she ever got a speck of dirt on her in the whole movie, so... <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a, that's a positive for sure for her at least. Like it's, even though it, it, the whole character is thankfully treated better in that sense. Like she's not smacked around, she's not half naked for most of it. But it does feel like they also didn't know what to do with her a little yeah. bit. Um, it doesn't help that I don't think she's a that good of an actress. Um, <laughs> I've never disliked her in anything to be honest, but. She lacks the screen presence and charisma. I was reading up that they had other um, ideas in mind. They were originally going to propose it to Scarlett Johansson and Kira Knightley. I don't see them either in this <laughs> in this part, honestly. If anything, it would have been 
weaker in some sense. Um, but I think, especially Scarlett Johansson could have brought over a bit more of the of the allure and appeal of of Chanel from the novel. But it's, I think, of a thankless role. Um, she Very does much. what she can. So I don't blame her. I honestly don't blame her. Um, I think the highlight for me of the cast is Michael Rispoli as Bob Sala, the photographer. I think he's great in this film. He was excellent. He oh. really, he took that character. I, I believed, you know, 100% that that's how he lives. That's who he is. You know, he's not playing a role. Holy crap, they found this guy on the street somewhere and said, can you like read these words just been living in puerto rico for a couple of years Holy and like smoke. yeah man, i'm just done with everything just just <laughs> just tired of, of being there but also unable to move on because he doesn't have enough money just kind of like gliding yeah. through life he's great he's a he's a joy to watch whenever he's on screen yeah um, and and even i have to say even aaron eckert which ended up like you mentioned putting in like made one character out of two I think he does a good job in this. Um, probably not as conniving and manipulative as the book version, but you know, he, he does he does a decent job. And I think if, if anything, probably the cast is what elevates this film ultimately, um, because different actors in different roles could have easily brought it down. Richard Jenkins is also very fun. Uh, I love the guy, and seeing him was to pay like wig on top of his head. <laughs> I feel like uh, Giovanni Ribisi really took a took the Moberg in his own direction. Like I didn't yes. that's not how I imagined that in the book when I was reading the character. <laughs> oh, that's just the look of him in this film. It's like, Giovanni Ribisi is always underrated, I think. Like we we seldom see him anymore in movies, I think. It just pops up here and there. If yeah, there was there was a time he was everywhere, and then I forgot yeah. I forgot about him. And then this movie is like, wait, I know him. <laughs> I remember him. He was everywhere one time. He he was in Ted, and then he did <laughs> Ted Two, and then he did you know a million ways to die in the West. It's like, what 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 are you doing here? Go away. <laughs> and then he just dropped out of everything. He's gonna be in all those Avatar sequels though. Great. Um, he did a film called A Million Little Pieces. Which was all right. It's it's strange. It's like you both said there. It's sort of he was a big thing for a while, mm. and then kind of just petered out. He was in Selma. He was in Meadowland. And I don't know what happened to him though. He's he's a certainly great actor, but I, I think for the Rum Diary as well, he mm, it's it's an odd one. I I don't mind him in this. You know, when when you're introduced to him at the bar, and you kind of just staggers out and it's like the man can't write because he's always drunk if he stops drinking he'll essentially just die it's like yeah it's 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 that's the right level of sort of comical but there's a real serious twist that you can implement later on if you need to and i think a lot of the characters have that like bob Sala, an incredible performance but then you kind of look at the heartbreak of that character is he's probably he was probably a decent journalist that has been stuck here for so long that he's given up and it's and it's it's so easy to sort of reflect on that as yeah can't blame him, and it's a, a lot of it comes down to sort of the the performance of an individual in this film. It's whether this person's good or that person's good, and when they're all together, it just sometimes it feels a bit off. Sometimes it's not quite where it should be. You know, the big finale where they're all together at the end and then they all go off in their separate ways. It doesn't really feel like it has that much not emotional impact to it, but it 
doesn't feel right for the way Robinson's written the story. Hmm. It's a very hope, I would say, hopeful and optimistic way to end the story, because in in the or in their novel of the Rum Diary, like you get to the end where basically everything's going to absolute shit. <laughs> like the editor has died of a heart attack after this. <laughs> they tried to kill him because he closed down the office and made no one. Um, everyone's trying to leave the island because they're gonna probably be arrested for attempted murder. And and Paul Kenneth is just done with everything. He's done with Chanel. He's, he's, start, he's probably going to start a new life going back to New York. But but there doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel. It's a very dark, bleak ending. Um, it's just it, an escape. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Everyone like, escape. Pretty much. Just escaping. And yeah, it's... And what's bittersweet, especially, is the fact that they went to Puerto Rico trying to have a new life and like, oh, start a job at this newspaper and let's see what happens next. And what happens next is nothing. Like they're back to step step one, only with a worse liver due to all the rum. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that kind of scares me as well. I've read this as a point, like, you know, in in about six months I'm moving and it's Mm. for that exact reason is to sort of, start afresh and it wasn't until i finished rum terror it's like ah yeah i'm, I'm just scratch square one that's it starting at ground zero and it's like oh right okay well it's worked out well for this lot so <laughs> we'll see how that goes and it's what really bugs me about the film though is the ending i really like the sort of lead up to it i like the, mm. the sort of heroic actions of paul kemp saying we're going to publish your work naturally that does not happen right. um what 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 I don't get is why Robinson ends it with oh yes and, and then he lived very happily in New York yeah he had a wife he had a family he had everything oh, that a person could geez. want it's like that's not the point though the point is that this man is a debutante at the best of times why would he want that he's got to yeah. Puerto Rico to escape that sort of rat race lifestyle and the ending essentially is you're wrong to escape that lifestyle get get back to normalcy <laughs> get back to having the wife and the children and the flat in New York and it's like all right but that's not the point of what the book was trying to present it didn't even have that in the book i don't think it was sort of open-ended it was oh, they mm. might meet up. who knows doubtful but i think it's that cemented idea that yes that'll happen they will get back together the happy endings will come and it's like nah that doesn't happen that not in the real world that was yeah. the tidiest bow i've ever seen at an ending <laughs> this the words come up and by the way he married a chanel and they lived happily he became a famous journalist and he was like wait what <laughs> Yeah. It's it's as if they ran out of film and just put, and then they were happy. That's <laughs> right. The end. The end. I I I think what I I can kind of understand why they did it because it, this was made like five six years after Hunter Thompson passed away. Yeah. And I think they were thinking, oh, well, you know, let's the give him the happy ending. Yes, just an honor to him. Where they're blurring the line between Paul Camp and Thompson. Yeah. But yeah, I, much. Yeah. I, I like if Hunter Thompson was alive and they made something like that. I don't think he would be very happy. I don't know how he would take it. <laughs> if he'd be like, well, "Oh, thank you for portraying me as someone who ended up being a famous journalist and had a lovely wife and lovely children." <laughs> this way, magical way. <laughs> <laughs> when they first tried to do the project, um, it was Johnny Depp and Nick Nolte was meant to play either Lotterman or um, Bob Seller, and. Um, the project didn't get past development stage and Hunter Thompson wrote them a very angry letter 
where he oh, called phenomenal. it all a waterhead fuck around. <laughs> and oh, yeah. Essentially, lambasting everyone involved with it and said, What are you doing to my work? What, what, what are you trying to prove? Um, I, I don't think he was alive for any more adaptations of his work, um, which is probably for the best because I, I know he was sort of, uh, what's the word? Not violent, but very hesitant with people that were trying to adapt his work. The guy that directed um, Repo Man had a meeting with him, and it's in a documentary called Breakfast with Hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a meeting with the scriptwriters, and he's just so aggressive to them. And it's like, oh, we're really big fans, we'd like to adapt your work. And he just sort of says, why? You know I own guns. It's like, alright, Hunter, we get your message, we'll not do that. <laughs> and it's just such a... I suppose that's what happens when you've been drinking quite heavily for the past 50 years and have seen the death of the American dream. But he's, he was a bit harsh to the lads, I must say. Um, but it kind of... It's it's those moments and those little stories that you hear about him in the later moments when he's sort of hit his fame and it's petered out and now he's just reviving old projects to release and the adaptations come through. Mm. It does feel like it's overwhelming, not just for him, but sort of the people that are getting involved with this. They're biting off more than they can chew. And I think that's the issue Bruce Robinson has, is that he he, he goes into the Hunter Thompson project, he goes into the big circus ah, I've got writer's block, what should I do? Well, I'll think like Hunter. And he starts drinking really heavily. And the output is essentially a film that is quite messy. It's good messy. It's really interesting. Um, but it's that ending. Where that comes from. That 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 To me, that ending is a that'll do. Sign it off, get it sent out. We've got to start filming now. Rather than a, well, let's think this through. What, what should the ending actually mean for these characters? Mm-hmm. Because it's, you know... If, if you think about any of the Hunter S. Thompson work, even if it's it's just a short article, or if it's one of his big compendiums, none of them ended with that idea that he's quite happy. It, it probably won. <laughs> yeah, if anything, it's the opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah, that letter, uh, I, I heard somebody reading the letter, and Hunter's just in the background laughing as it's being read out, you know, like, <laughs> totally ripping the, the producers apart. He's like, make this damn movie, you know, God damn it. And, uh, <laughs> but I remember thinking that too, I was watching one of those documentaries when they were trying to, they were speaking about adapting the fear and loathing, uh, the wave scene as an animated sequence. And he lost his marbles over the idea that you were going to turn it into a fucking Mickey Mouse cartoon. <laughs> and then here I am making a cartoon graphic novel about it. So when people have asked me, you know, what would Thompson think about it? this idea of you doing a graphic novel of his work, like, he's going to haunt me. He's going to hate it. You know, like, no illusions whatsoever. <laughs> oh, what, what a legend. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I mean, me and my friends used to just sign, we'd, we'd get drunk and we'd just talk about random stuff. And my, my favorite topic of conversation was the, the many antics of Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> and we would always talk about the Jack Nicholson incident where he put a deer carcass on his porch or something and set off a pig alarm and a light and it flashed into his house and it was Jack Nicholson's birthday and he was quite scared and thought he was getting attacked. So he he and his daughters ran into the basement and hid and then Hunter Thompson knocked on the door and said, happy birthday. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just... I, it's why I, I don't have any trouble believing Fear and Loathing. It's why I don't have any trouble mm. believing the Rum Diaries because... The man was very much insane, like probably clinically, and yeah. it's it's the fact that he di- he did these things all the time, not to write about them, but because he found that entertaining. I mean, it's like there's all that footage of um, 
Fear and Loathing on the road, and it's where the BBC took him back to Las Vegas, and he's sat in the back of a car, driven by the BBC, just necking cans of beer. And they're like, oh, does this bring back many memories? It's like, yes. And then he just necks another beer. It's like, all right, I, I see you're enjoying yourself. And it's it's the fact that there's so much archive footage now of mm. Hunter S. Thompson doing insane things. And I feel like that's him trying to live up to the sort of persona he became. I know there's a scene where I think it's at the start of that Breakfast at Hunter documentary, or maybe the, the Gonzo one. Um, he walks into the, the editor's office of the Rolling Stone with a fire extinguisher and just starts spraying him with it. And it's like, alright, it's funny, but what's what's the reasoning behind that? Is it because he's just trying to live up to that whole Gonzo thing that he built himself into, or has he actually just snapped? Yeah, I think a lot of it was embodying the character. Uh, he's mm. got a camera on him, and I think many, many times you've seen him trying to do a, a legitimate talk at a, at somewhere and everyone's just, you know, shouting, gutting acid, you know, like they're just playing into the character of him where he can almost like not even discuss anything seriously. You know, they're not here for, for the journalism side of his reporting and his writing is there as for the spectacle and the character and the drugs and all that. It's a shame as well. Cause he, <laughs> even before the sort of Gonzo stuff, he was a very good journalist. It's, um, what are they called? The uh, the Gonzo Diaries or something. The, the the four compendium pieces that go along with his work. The the second one is just his really early work where he was a travel writer and a sport reporter and it's genuinely just solid journalism. It's very well researched and he knows what he's talking about. It's the the sport articles he did in the the, the sort of the, the first compendium. The name escapes me. I think it's the, the Hunt for the Great White Shark. Something along those lines. Um, he's, he was a genuinely good journalist and it, it's good that he found this strange niche that he could capitalize off of, but as I'm sure we, we've all know, is it's all burnt him out, essentially, by, by the end of the, the 70s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he got too big for his own good. That's yeah. the, the side effect of success. Yeah, he's on Charlie Rose. Yeah. He's on Charlie Rose talking about the Rum Diaries. I, was, I think, oh, I'll watch this and see if I can kind of glean anything out of it, but he was pretty much... You couldn't understand hardly a word he was saying. It yeah. made no sense, you know? And at that point in his life, it's like, uh, he's just, you know, he's surrounded by a lot of people who kind of want to capitalize off that. He wants to get yeah. some money and, and he's living kind of this, you know, persona, I guess, or th th this ghost of his former character or something, you know? And I feel kind of, I just feel bad for him by the, by the end of it, you know? Yeah. 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 It's kind of tragic. It's like the the guy was very smart, and you sort of see that in the Run Diary. It's it's this great analysis of what what was essentially the fragmented beginnings of great journalism, and it's sort of the the push that people would put themselves through to get there. It's that breakdown of Western journalists thinking that they can go somewhere and make something huge and successful, realizing they can't do it, and just sort of backing out, leaving the mess for others. And it's a lot of that is shown with Waterman, who is. <laughs> In, in the book, just a, a sniveling coward, essentially. But in, in the film, is more or less there for comic relief until the very end, when he's necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think most of the journalism scenes in the film are... I, I, I don't want to say they feel like an afterthought, because there's, there are a couple of good moments in there, but I think trying to adapt it into a film where it has like beginning, middle, and end, and the story that audiences can follow nicely... Um, they focus a bit too much on trying to build up the romance between Camp and Chanel, where all of the journalism side of things 
it's not nearly as effective as it is in the book. Yeah, and it works when you're when you're looking at it as its own thing. I think it works, but taking it as a like an adaptation of the novel, it's that's that part's lacking a bit, which is unfortunate. And it was at the core of of uh, Thompson's writing. Yeah, I mean, there's there's those nice early scenes where. Um, mm. Paul Kemp's getting a tour of the office and Richard Jenkins is sort of pointing at whiteboards going, oh, do you know how to write horoscopes? Things <laughs> like that just thrown out are really good, mm. but it's sort of the meaning behind it and the reasoning behind it that Robinson kind of just leaves out. It, it's meant more as just an offhand remark rather than something we can focus on, which is kind of like, you know, the, the Rum Diary, the book, it has that time to focus because it's, it's a book. It doesn't have an hour and 45 and that's the lot. Mm. It's it's very much contained in its own world and you can go back to it and everything like that. And I, it's, it's where I can appreciate Robinson and the writing he does for this. It's, it's difficult to condense any book, but a, a book with so much going on and so many characters, it's no wonder he's making Aaron Heckart play two in one. There's no wonder that people are sidelined and it's sort of those misgivings make sense, but to the point where can we forgive them? That's, that's the issue I've got going. Yeah, I think he was trying to insert like a, a bit of that knowledge of Hunter Thompson becoming the journalist mm. he would become, and he didn't read that necessarily in the novel. So he definitely had that this, this drive for truth and stuff that Paul Kemp was embodying in the film that I didn't really pick up as as clearly, I guess, in the book. Yeah, especially given Beth's performance as well, where he's trying mm. to channel a young Raul Duke. It's mm-hmm. it's effective. That's I cannot deny that it's very effective in that sense, but it's it could have been a bit more. Even in in terms of style, um, something I I really loved Whitman and I. I watched it a couple of years ago. Um, I think that's a that's a like an iconic film for for the UK. Like everyone has seen it or close to it. But but I, w- I was I was almost pretty expecting. I think that's my fault honestly for expecting a bit more. To be, to it to be a bit more out there, in terms of style of, of you know the camera work and the editing, but in that sense it is an effective adaptation because it does take the style of the novel, which is very meandering and there's not much going on in terms of excitement. So it just edits it and shoots it in a very simple yet effective way. Nothing that stands out too much. But yeah, I think that's ultimately how I feel about the film. It's it's all right. And for me, a bit brought down by having read the book right before it. So it's kind of like, yeah. I wonder if I, not having read the book, it would have been better or worse. I, judging by I you, mean, you on it, it probably would have been worse at this point. To be fair, I, I don't trust the thing I said <laughs> a year ago. So any review I've done from the past year, I'm like, okay, good. After that year, nonsense, dreadful. I've already re-reviewed two films this year, and it's because I forgot I'd written things about them. Um... <laughs> And it's it's that trajectory that I'm gonna to have to part ways with. Yeah, I'm I'm curious. Ultimately, would you guys do you guys prefer the novel or the film of, of, uh, the Rum Diary? I think I get something out of both of them that's mm-hmm. very different from one another. I think Rob like Robinson took and made his own kind of version of it, and there's elements to that I can enjoy. I can enjoy that there's a bit more of a plot. It's it's fairly linear what happens and can maybe cut out some of the, the repetition uh, mm. that was in the novel. But the novel also has that early voice that you're reading by the author Hunter Thompson, which is why we're all here. Um, 
and and you two different very things out of the same thing, you know. Uh, in a lot of cases in the, in the past for me, I'd be irritated by that because they're not really doing a good job adapting the thing that I enjoy in the first place. But in this case, I can kind of separate the two as two different things and enjoy mm. them on their own terms. Yeah. Ewan? Oh, um, <laughs> I think I, I, I have a real soft spot for the book, and I think it's because it's caught me at the right time. Where it's it's essentially about a, a a journalist who has gone to somewhere he doesn't know, lived the high life, realized it's not for him, and then essentially tried to escape, and it's just such a, a compelling story, and it's I think it's it, it it's definitely because, uh, you know I, I I'm working in journalism and that kind of it, anything about journalism whether it's like the French Dispatch or All the President's Men it kind of just sticks with me to the point where I can follow it a bit you know, with more entertainment to the sort of deeper parts of it, you know, the, the newsrooms looking like a mess and the the little flourishes here or there are just really like because it's nothing like that at all. And it's nice to have this sort of imagined version of what a newsroom should be like. You know, you've got the, the men smoking at typewriters and the trilby hats and they've got press stuck in the side <laughs> of their hat and stuff. And it's really nice seeing that brought to life because it breaks up the monotony of what it actually is. Um, I think it's for the book for me. It's it's odd because I I wasn't born in the nineteen sixties, but I felt oddly nostalgic for the area and for the people, mm. and for that brand of journalism, for that sort of nose to the grindstone. You're fighting against a system that's trying to bash you down, especially since the system is where you're working. It's it's there's there's a sick beauty to it, and I think that's captured really nicely. And it's it's something I've never had to experience, thankfully. <laughs> But it, it does seem like something that's just not magic because it, it sounds horrible, but it just truly fascinating. And I think, like you said, Troy, that Robinson does a good job of adapting that and to the point where he makes it his own thing. And it's it's nice to see so many different perspectives of what journalism is to certain creatives. It's either a hellhole barrel of weasels for Hunter Thompson or for Robinson just a hellhole barrel of weasels in a very hot climate essentially <laughs> and it's really nice it's 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 warming in a, like a sick way yeah it's i think this is it's at the core of the podcast as well it's just kind of like you know what's better the film or the novel and most of the times we're finding out well they're just different and i think yeah. the rum diary encapsulates that thinking very well for both for all the reasons you two said um i do i do prefer the novel greatly to be honest compared to the film uh mainly because i just loved getting lost in it i love i just i was just feeling it i was feeling it on my skin while reading it i was i was enjoying spending time with those dirty dirty characters morally and just <laughs> physically dirty um getting into all sorts of shenanigans without ever getting excessively cartoonish which was was very very welcome but but yeah i have to give credit to the film as well because they they did the best they could and honestly you feel the heart behind it it doesn't feel like a cash grab i think if they made it right after thompson died where they had like other ideas and johnny depp wasn't involved i think that would have been a probably a disaster but the fact that you have people who cared about the writer and the book especially um, I think it's palpable, the, the love yeah. behind it and the making of it. I just wish it was a bit more, I don't know, focused. I don't know. It's just, 
it, it's surprisingly coherent for a production where everyone spent most of their time drinking cold Coronas because the weather was so hot. <laughs> Just downing them constantly to survive the heat. Well, that's, that that must have been hell. That's they they Sounds felt like a it. Dream, fantastic. <laughs> oh wow! I can't drink Coronas anymore because I am. Um... I got very drunk at my leavers do for college, and I drank like twelve of them. And oh, I just even the smell just knocks me ill. Like, <laughs> I can't touch them anymore. They're just so bad. Someone it was like a, it was a barbecue, and I was quite drunk. And it was all like the teaching staff were doing it. And one of them was on the barbecue, and he, he just seared a steak on the barbecue and said, "Eat that, you'll feel better." And I picked it up, red right hot off the grill. Looked at it, threw it on the floor, and just went delicious. And then I tried to run away, but I fell down a hill. <laughs> but I don't drink Corona anymore. Oh boy! I just wow. Um, before we we close off this is our our fun little segment, um, I'm curious: Do you have any standout scenes and characters from the book and the film that just stood out to you that you love yeah. that you go back to with your mind? It's for, for the film. It's the introduction of Lotman because it reminds me a lot mm. of Filth, which we're talking about on a podcast hey. in a few months, and it's one of my favorite books and one of my favorite films. And it's because in Filth, the, the police commissioner is obsessed with becoming a screenwriter, so it's it's a big open secret where if no, somebody comes into his office unexpectedly, he's got like cinema guide 101 open on his desk and he slams it away and he throws it into the drawer and he's got Kubrick's space odyssey poster behind him it's like the, the open guarded secret and for me lotterman was kind of the the editor i'm yet to work with but inevitably will and it's knowing that that's impending i mean all the editors i've worked with have been fantastic you know our our, our jack brilliant guy he's not like lotterman but i imagine the, the more places I write for, eventually I'm going to stumble across my very own Waterman. And Probably. it's it's nice seeing that these people in Room Diary are projections of people that do exist somewhere. It's just seeking them out is going to be exciting and terrifying. But I think that the best scene for me is the, the, the sort of open cowardliness and simplicity of Waterman, where he walks around the office introducing people and he's like, Oh, can you write about bowling alleys? Do you know about horoscopes? Like, he's not really listening. He's just throwing as much as he can at the new guy because he wants rid of it for himself. He can't do that anymore because he's nearly there to break down. But Lotterman's a, an interesting character. It's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. How about you, Troy? Yeah, the, as well. Uh, all of that, for sure. Um, I, I quite got a kick out of the sequence too, where they're late at night trying to get a, a hamburger with their rums and the, and the restaurants closed, you know, the grills closed and you've got these two like drunk out of their mind, Americans way out of their element and in hostile territory. And they're just, we should just casually walk to the car kind of moment and please don't let there be headlights. And then there's headlights to the final climax of them being, having their car almost smashed to bits and stuff. But when, when, Paul Kemp blows fire and it cuts to the burning hat of the police officer and then them into jail was just a, a comic cut for me. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> kind of like... That's when the film comes to life, honestly. Yeah, yeah. It was a great sequence. <laughs> it's very good. I, I, I loved everything that had to do with Bob Sala. It's just when they're watching TV as well and they're seeing the 
JFK is talking with Nixon. Those moments are are that's that's when I was just hooked to the film. I was like, okay, this this is interesting. This is compelling, and that's when it feels the closest to Thompson's writing as well. It's kind of like it just clicks. In those moments, it just clicks for me. Um, but yeah, there's so many characters in the film, in the book. It's it's quite the cast, and I think that's ultimately the best statement testament to to Anders Thompson's writing. Just regardless of the topic, regardless of the subject, you just read his books and his articles, and you're just you're just transported into them. Um, and you it's, know, it's, he, yeah, sorry, it's, it's challenging with like you can't. You will always kind of have Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas as a comparison point. I don't know how I would see this movie or this book if I'd never, you know, been exposed to his work before. How, to, mm. how do you view that without um, comparing it to that, like, high-octane, acid-driven version of Hunter Thompson that everyone kind of knows? Because <laughs> it's much more subdued than that. As much as it's dirty, filthy, and, and awful, it's... It's a bit more accessible in some ways and relatable than, mm. than the Vegas trip, but less of it a chaotic adventure and roller coaster ride too. So I don't know how to see this, you know, with a, with clean eyes in some ways as being a quieter version of it. So anyone who's seen and is familiar with Hunter Thompson comes to see this movie or this book might have that, like I did the first time, my expectations were like, oh, this, this isn't as good as I was hoping, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would be interested to find somebody who'd just seen it without having any prior knowledge to what whole Hunter Thompson's world is about and say, what did you think of this? You know, that would be very interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, but even then I, 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 I always have a fascination with watching, you know, acclaimed directors and writers and just reading the things, everything that made them pop and then going back to the beginning mm. and with Thompson, I think what what makes the novel work is when it is about, you know, the journalist, everything you talked about. And the only thing that's drawing it back a little bit is that he was probably still trying to be more of a fiction writer. Mm. And so he's insert in, in just using fictional characters and adding more dramatic moments of tension that feel a bit more calculated compared to something more loose and free-flowing and just bonkers like Fear and Loathing or Hell's Angels, where it is, you know, it's pretty much non-fiction despite having fictional elements thrown in there um i think that's that's what sets it apart from his later work but hey it, it was finding his voice and ultimately it did <laughs> and we're blessed blessed to have his work honestly um and i have to read more i have to read more from him because it's like i've the past two years i've started reading more and more we've mentioned it many times with yuan and both times reading fear and loathing and the rum diary i was just going through them and thinking ah oh, just reading can be so fun <laughs> it can be so good so rewarding and it just draws me back into it so i'll probably save them for whenever i'm feeling a bit of a lull a bit of a like oh i'm losing a bit of focus in the reading it's like no just read Andres thompson be reminded of what good reading is like and that there's good stuff out there it's mm. probably gonna give me second wind it's it's, and it's also why I love doing this podcast. It's just discovering authors and novels that I probably wouldn't have read otherwise for one reason or another. And I have to thank you, Juan, as well for that, for, for recommending Fear and Loathing in the first place. And that's why we're all here now. 
I recommend yeah. uh, the, the Curse of Lono if you can find the copy of that yeah. with the uh, Stedman illustrations. That's a fun, mm. short, very Vegas kind of ride, but with with Ralph Stedman on board. Oh, I quite enjoyed that one. Definitely be on the lookout for that. But yeah, this is the end of our episode, and thank you very much, Troy, for joining us. Where yeah, can the lovely much. people? find you online where can they find your work which again there's going to be links in the description uh interested uh well i do me and my wife both do comic books uh we're at pegamoosepress.com and uh you can you can find our all the stuff we've worked on our own personal projects as well as our, our licensed projects and stuff we've worked on in there um twitter instagram links below <laughs> <laughs> And how about you, Ewan? Where can the lovely people find you? Oh, um, I don't <laughs> you're know, everywhere. I'm, ah, it's it's so uh, cult following clapper. Yeah. Uh, Newcastle World Daily Star, uh, Geek Show, Spark Sunderland. That'll do. Uh, that'll yeah. do. And I should say officially blue ticked now. Verified Twitter journalist. That means whatever I say. Is either meaningless or very accurate. Um, it's the word <laughs> with a capital W. It is. I am. Um, <laughs> I I've managed to con my way to a blue tick. I am. Um, it's mad. I shouldn't have one of those. It's it's a good beginning to twenty twenty two. It is. Twenty twenty two is my year. Yay. Probably. We're all six days in. But... Yeah. If not, flee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm running away to another part of the country in like six months anyway, so if the first six months don't go bad, I'll just have 2022.2. I'll be fine. It's the rise and fall. <laughs> the rise Hopefully fall not. Hopefully not, geez. The rise give, of you give, give it eight months, I'll be like just eating hamburgers in whole, sort of just sat on the marina with nothing else to do. That's the dream. Brilliant. That's the dream. And a drink and a glass of rum. In the other Get hand. your taste for Corona back. Oh no! I found a very nice rum. It's called Dom Punch. It's very nice. It tastes right. a bit like licorice. Add the ball. Lovely. <laughs> oh, it's delicious. Uh, um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at nikiwell97, and there you have my link tree. Link trees forward slash enjoy the movies for everything related to this, and also you can follow the podcast. Uh, the Death by Adaptation podcast on on Instagram at Death by Adaptation pod, on Twitter just Death Adaptation, and we've also opened recently a TikTok profile, because why not? We've been doing a lot of those reels for Instagram. It's been fun. So I was like, hey, you know, let's, let's go over the cool kids are. So if, you, if you're listening to this because you found us on TikTok and love Hunter S. Thompson, thank you. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a miracle, honestly. <laughs> but this has been lovely I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to this and we hope to see you soon we have a new episode coming out in a couple weeks time we're going back to the standard let's say scheduling where we're talking about the invisible man and catch 22 another fun fun pairing <laughs> so stay tuned for that one <laughs> thank you very much for listening and we hope you have a fabulous day bye bye <laughs>